Talk Recorded live. All right, guys. It's uh, Mercurius here. And uh, I felt like reading just a little bit before I went to bed. And uh, so I'm going to be reading an excerpt out of this book that I have. It's called uh, Our Sacred Cow History. How the battle for our heritage and culture has turned into a war for the very survival of our people. It's by uh, L. Regan O'Carroll. And so I'm just going to be reading this chapter here. It's uh, chapter 13, God Says No. It starts out with a quote. It says, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. Galileo Galilee. So, it starts. If you're not Christian, I understand if you're hesitant to read the next few chapters. After all, what could these chapters possibly have that's relevant to you? Actually, quite a bit. Because even if you aren't Christian, you probably have a lot of Christian friends, and this information is vitally important for them. Christians have been misled by their ministers. The Christian system of belief has been twisted for a long time. The Bible has been misinterpreted and abused. If you don't read and understand the next few chapters, how can you possibly help your Christian friends? You see, Christians will not believe a word of this book if they can't get their Bible right. If Christians won't understand that God does indeed discriminate and demand racial separation, all is lost. You, my friend, as a non-Christian, are in the minority. Christians must be convinced about racial truths. Because in the final analysis, it doesn't matter what Nathaniel Morton, the Presbyterian Church, or the United States Supreme Court has to say about race mixing. The only authority that matters to us as Christians is Yahweh God and his holy scriptures. What does the creator of mankind, the creator of the individual races, have to say in his inspired word about his creation and race mixing? Just as importantly, is it relevant for us today? Those are the questions that face our Christian nation as we look at a future filled with ever-darkening citizens as a result of immigration and mixed marriages. Christians, how much sacred cow syndrome are you willing to cure with knowledge and truth? Whether or not you accept tradition or God is your decision, but the next few chapters will give you truths probably never before heard from your pastor or in your weekly Bible class. The future of your people depends on whether or not you're willing to think for yourself and believe God's word as written, not as explained by your church. Protestant church Christians have been proud to say sola scriptura, the Bible alone, as our guide, is our guide for hundreds of years. It has been the rallying cry for Christians since the Great Reformation broke out in the early 1500s in homogenous Caucasian Germany. As previously shown, for centuries, Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians called interracial marriage by the name God calls it sin. There were no sacred cows in the days of Martin Luther to convince otherwise. My, how times have changed. In only a few short generations, the Bible is no longer the rallying cry for today's Christians. 
Sola Scripture has been replaced by tradition, political correctness, Christian, quote, unity, and, quote, love your neighbor as yourself. Man believes he can, quote, explain what God, quote, meant in his holy word. The holy scriptures are twisted and reworded to suit the mood of the day. Sure, Christians still have Bibles and take them to church, but Christians today don't read their Bibles. Instead, they peruse them, looking for favorite texts and stories, using one verse or another in times of distress. Christians can recite the story of Jonah and the whale, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Tower of Babel, Jesus' birth and death, and their favorite parable. Every Christian has their favorite biblical story, yet Christians don't know their Bibles. I know, I know. Your hackles are up and your sacred cow is irritated. You like to think that you know your Bible. Do you have the courage to read on, silence your sacred cow, and set aside your spiritual traditions? Are you prepared to be surprised, shocked even? Consider this. Jesus Christ could not have been born into the seed of David and fulfilled prophecy if it were not for the racial consciousness of his forefathers. That's right, I said racial consciousness. Kind of makes you just a little uncomfortable to think of it that way, doesn't it? You're squirming just a little because you've been taught not to think of social issues that way, and if you do, you're gasp racist. Yet the genealogy of Jesus Christ was deemed so important that the New Testament begins with the family tree of Christ to prove his racial purity. Quote, modern man with his, quote, rational mind has decided that he knows better. Racial purity is no longer necessary. God didn't really mean what is written in the Bible for Christians today. Someone's sacred cow is in for a big shock. It might be prudent to prepare a stall with comfortable straw, just in case. Most evangelicals are sure that God does not discriminate. After all, Acts 10.34 says, quote, God shows no partiality, or, quote, God is no respecter of persons. Pastors and theologians have been preaching and teaching this, quote, truth for decades now. Pounding this into unsuspecting Christians, convincing them that we're all the same. Sermons are preached on the subject. Sunday school classes cover the topic. Little children are taught that everyone is the same under God. Songs are sung and books are written, ensuring that Christians understand this important message loud and clear. God does not discriminate. The Bible even says we're all of one blood in Acts 17.26. That's what pastors tell gullible congregations, quote, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. According to theologians, this text, quote, proves that we're all the same. If you don't agree with, quote, God in these texts, you're a racist. I've heard it all. I have been called some interesting names and worse. If liberals and multiculturalists can't win the race-mixing argument on, quote, truth, they try to win on name-calling and labels. The evangelical worldview does not have a God that discriminates. So anyone who teaches that he does is automatically bigoted, hateful, racist, blah, blah, blah. Which, quote, book do you want to follow, man's book or God's? Do you want to be politically correct or do you want to follow God's truth? Quote, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, 
but the Lord pondereth the hearts. These so-called ministers of the gospel today are no better than the Pharisees of old. Jesus said to them, quote, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. The pastor of my previous multicultural loving church actually told me that the world would be better when everyone had racially mixed and we were all one light brown color. No more diversity. The earth would be one homogenous race. This man was very loving when he told me to cease spreading my, quote, hateful message. But he is an abomination in the sight of God who is justifying himself before men. God is not mocked. He is the author of discrimination. God said about the children of Israel who wandered in the wilderness, quote, Forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. The Revised Standard Version says that God, quote, loathed that generation. Children of God, do not be ones who the Lord loathes. Do not err in your hearts. Follow the ways of God, not man. God's word, the Bible, tells us what he says about interracial marriage. Let him be your guide, not man. Let's open his book and see what he wrote to us, his children. You may need to muzzle your sacred cow for the next few chapters, or even consider sending her to the barn and locking her up. What you're about to learn is so new, so different, so radical from anything you have learned up until now that your sacred cow will just become irrational and cause problems. We don't need sacred cow syndrome getting in the way of truth, so just set her aside for now and open your heart. Quote, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Most Christians can probably recite Genesis 1-1 by heart. Anyone who has ever heard about the Bible, whether they believe it or not, knows that the Bible knows that the Bible teaches that God created the earth and everything in it in six days and rested on the Sabbath. God created light, atmosphere, water, and dry land. He created the sun, moon, and stars that we all enjoy so much. God also created the plants and animals. Quote, Let the earth put forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. God made the mighty oak tree and the delicate crepe myrtle. He created the oh-so-good-to-eat peaches and the pineapple, each according to their own variety and kind. Again, God said, quote, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. What fun God must have had making the endless variety of plants and animals at creation. I know that I certainly enjoy looking at his glorious creation. Elephants and squirrels, whales and seahorses, hummingbirds and eagles, every living creature that moves, every beast of the earth, and everything that creeps on the earth, all were created according to their species and kind. Ten times in the Genesis creation story, God says that he created everything, quote, according to their kind. And every time after finishing, God gave himself kudos. He said, wow, I did a good job. And God saw that it was good. 
a little cosmic patting on the back, so to speak. Six times God is proud of his work of creation by saying, quote, it's good. And after he's finished, after he's created man, it's not just good, it's very good. Quote, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Here is where your pastor will stop the creation story. He'll tell you about the wonders of God's creation. He'll tell you how glorious and powerful and awesome God's creative genius is. But he won't tell you about God creating everything according to the law of kind after kind. Nope, that's just a little bit too controversial. The creation story is better left as a delightful children's bedtime story than the powerful message it really sends for God's creation. Sacred cow theology is so much easier for ministers. It doesn't make them have to stand up for God. Today's ministers get to be funny and cute behind the pulpit, never truthful or controversial with God's truths. I don't have that problem. The word, quote, kind, used throughout the Genesis account of creation is the Hebrew word, quote, mayim, mayim. It's Strong's Concordance, number 4327, and means to portion out a sort, i.e. species, Look it up, you'll see. Any theologian or minister should know Hebrew or Greek since they study it in seminary. Knowing what the original words mean in the original language is critical. Basically, any layperson, any Bible teacher, or really any serious student of the Bible has the ability to know this stuff. Heck, their cows can know this stuff. Bible concordances are inexpensive and easy to use. You can find them online. I have two exhaustive concordances of the Bible, and I look up the meaning of the words in the original language. It may be a little dull and time-consuming, but sure shines light on God's word and truth. The creation story is as clear as the greater light that God created to rule the day. God creates. When he creates living things, including plants and animals, he creates them after their own kind or species. God then pronounces them good. You have no problem with separate species when it comes to trees, flowers, dogs, cows. What species is your sacred cow? Horses and birds. Man has made it a point of pride to, quote, perfect an endless variety of species that God created. We, quote, fixed a line of thoroughbred racing horses to breed just one to win the Kentucky Derby. Then we keep his sperm and, quote, breed more horses. We breed the best hunting dogs or drug-sniffing dogs, choosing just the right species for the job. One breed of cattle is used for man to enjoy the juiciest steaks. Another for producing quality milk. The maple tree produces wonderful syrup, and we make our furniture from the mighty oak. We have no problem with God's variety of species in, anim in the animal and plant kingdom. We take advantage of those varieties. In man's arrogance, we forget that this endless variety of species of plants and animals were all uniquely created by God in the beginning. But you can handle this knowledge no problem. Yet when it comes to the crowning glory of creation, the species created to have dominion over everything else that God created, you cringe when I say God created this species using the same law of kind after kind. 
man, your sacred cow theology is so ingrained in your mind that you immediately think, not so. You get a little uncomfortable, no, a lot uncomfortable, thinking that God just might have been the author of discrimination, the very first racist, at least by today's definition. God can't be a racist. Why aren't you willing to give God the credit for creating variety in the species of man? Could it be that you've been conditioned to believe that you're racist if you think God wanted as much uniqueness in the human race as he did in the other species? Genesis isn't the only place where God specified that his creation be distinctive when it comes to species and types. The same word, quote, kind, in the Hebrew, quote, species, is used in Leviticus 19 when God sets up the laws for unclean animals that the children of Israel are to refrain from eating. But it's more than that. God wanted to make sure that the children of Israel understood the importance of kind after kind, keeping bloodlines pure. They couldn't even breed two different kinds of cattle together to sow their fields with two different kinds of seeds. God's injunction went so far as to prohibit the Israelites from wearing garments made from two kinds of cloth. Following these laws would remind the Israelites that God does not accept mixing in any form. He declared, you shall keep my statutes. As he was forbidding the mixing of cattle, seeds in the field, and garments of more than one kind of cloth. It was one of God's laws. Remember, God will not be mocked. Not then, and not today. Yes, kind after kind was, and still is, important to God. So muzzle your sacred cow, and let's see just how important. The very first place in the Bible, other than the creation account in Genesis 1 of kind after kind, where we see God ensuring that Adam follows kind after kind, is in the creation of Eve. What? You didn't know about the creation of Eve in this way? Of course not. Wrong worldview. Wrong sacred cow. Quote, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. The RSV renders it this way, quote, I will make him a helper fit for him. These words come straight from the mouth of God. The mate for the man that God made was to be fit for him. After saying these words, does God then create Eve? No. God first brings all creation to the man to be named. Quote, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The King James puts it this way. Quote, and whatever, whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Well, how about that? Was he a man, or was he Adam? Does it matter? Absolutely matters. Here, right at the beginning of the Bible, is the first distortion of Scripture on the part of biblical translators to fit their worldview. And this distortion happened hundreds of years ago. Why would one version use the word man and another use the name Adam. Truth is what we're after, and truth is what you'll get. This verse, Genesis 2.19, is the first time the name of Adam is found in the Bible, any Bible. Quote, Adam, according to Strong's Concordance, is the Hebrew word Adam, and is number 120 and 121 in Strong's Concordance. 
Number 120 means, quote, from 119, ruddy, i.e., a human being, an individual or the species, mankind, etc. Another, plus hypocrite, plus common sort, low, man, mean of low degree, person. Number 121 means, quote, Adam, Adam, the same as 120. Adam, the name of the first man, also as of a place in Pal. Adam. Number 119 means Adam, Adam, to show blood in the face, i.e. flush, or to blush, or turn rosy. To dyed, made, red, or ruddy. The first time that man is found in the Bible, any Bible, is in Genesis 1.26, quote, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. According to Strong's Concordance, the meaning of man in this verse in the Hebrew is Adam. How about that? Same word, different translation. Quiet your sacred cow and pay attention. The exact same Hebrew word that the translators incorrectly used for man, they then correctly used for Adam later. As a matter of fact, the word for man in the entire creation story is almost always Adam. Keep in mind, when speaking about the descendants or tribe of a person, the name will have a, quote, ite, after such as an Israelite instead of Israel. Therefore, now knowing what you do, this is how Genesis should read. Quote, Then God said, Let us make Adamites in our image, after our likeness. So God created Adamites in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And there was no Adamite or Adam kind to till the ground. Then the Lord God formed Adam of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put Adam, whom he had made. The Lord God took Adam and put him in the garden of Eden to kill it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded Adam, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that Adam should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Certainly puts a new and different yet accurate meaning on God's word, doesn't it? Everywhere you read the word Adam in the above paragraph, all versions of the Bible use the word man. But the Hebrew in every case is always Adam. And since the meaning of Adam means ruddy, to show blood in the face, in other words, to blush, flush, to turn rosy, it's obvious that Adam was white. This is just a fact. History and archaeology agree. It's not racist, as some would have you believe. It's just a fact. Facts are not racist. They're truth. Of course, some people and their sacred cows don't like truth. So when you speak these facts, you're called racist. It happens to me all the time. The meaning in Strong's that Adam means, quote, the first man isn't necessarily correct. Adam, indeed, was the first white man the first man named in the Bible. This does not mean that he was the first man ever created. Humans assume he was the first man to add that 
to their definition. Or so add that. Really have you scratching your sacred cow's head now, don't I? The above paragraph ends with Genesis 2.18. Picking up with verse 19, the King James Version finally puts in the correct word, Adam. Quote, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. The NIV only uses the name Adam at the end of verse 20. Quote, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. Don't miss this critical point. The view of the biblical translator was since that all races came from Adam, then, quote, Adam was not the same as, quote, man at creation. So, when translating the Bible, they had to decide when to give Adam his name. The translators had to decide when do we use the accurate Hebrew word Adam, and when do we use the generic word man. Truth took a back seat to sacred cow theology when translating the Bible. Their sacred cow theology could not have man and Adam being the same. It just doesn't fit their multicultural, inclusive worldview. Oh no, can't mess that up. There obviously is a Hebrew word for, quote, man, and it's Strong's number 376, or ish. It means a man as an individual or a male person, often used as an adjunct to a mort definite term, and in such cases frequently not expressed in translation. Also another, any man, a certain champion, consent, each, everyone, fellow, foot, husband, man, good, great, mighty, man, he, high, degree, him, that is, husband, man, kind, none, one, people, person, steward, what man, soever, whosoever, worthy. Woo! That's quite the definition. The first time the form of, quote, man is used in the Bible is in Genesis 2.23 and 24. Quote, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be as one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. It's important to note that the name Adam is not used in all translations in the above text as I put it. But the Hebrew is Strong's number 120, Adam. The use of the word man here is the Hebrew ish instead of Adam, because not only has Adam been identified at the beginning of their recitation, but he is now a husband. The distinction is clear. The redundancy of the use of the name Adam is unnecessary. Then it's back to Adam instead of Ish until Genesis 4.1 when Cain is born. Quote, When Eve says, I have gotten a man from the Lord, the Hebrew is Ish. After Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod and east of Eden, he found himself a wife there against the kind after kind principle of God. He and his descendants did not deserve the Adam or Adamite designation of man. 
Ish is then used to refer to either Cain's descendants or others in Genesis 4.23. Then comes an extremely important text in Genesis 5.1. Quote, This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man in the likeness of God made he him. That man is again Adam. The text should read, when God created Adam, or the Adamites, he made him in the likeness of God. Not only that, what we now call our Bible is the history of Adam and his descendants. The thrill of it all gives me goosebumps. How about you? By now you get the idea about Adam and man. The sacred cow theology of the translators, both in the early days of biblical translation and right up until today, has been one of inclusiveness. They don't dare use the word Adam in these texts and dozens of others, because remember, all races of men descended from Adam. Political correctness. You never knew it started so early. Is your sacred cow ready to move on? Or should I say go back? I left off when Adam is naming all creation. As the monkeys and lions, elephants and zebra, all living creatures are brought before Adam so he could see what he would call them. He obviously saw that they all had mates and that these mates were of the same species. There was a male and a female elephant, a male and a female iguana, a male and a female rabbit. I would argue that the male and female Negro, Asian, and other human races were brought before Adam at this time. Why? Because the Bible says that male and female of all creation was brought before Adam to be named. But Adam didn't find a helper fit for himself among all the living creatures that he named. I know your neck hair is arising. I can just hear you screaming at me. Quote, now hold on a contiguous minute. There's absolutely no way you're going to convince me that living creatures includes other humans. No way. I don't care what you say. I don't care if you tie my sacred cow up and beat it to death. There's no way that living creatures means other humans. This just isn't what I was taught. No way. Are you finished with your hissy fit? Put aside your sacred cow theology just for now and pay attention. You've been taught to be so open-minded that your brains are spilling out. It's time that you open your mind in a different way. Most people just can't swallow that the other races were already created at this point in time. Christians have been taught that all races descended from Adam and Eve. Then there's the theory of evolution. Take your pick. What's really the difference? But before you place me on a figurative cross and allow your sacred cow to stomp me to death, consider this. It just might be possible you've been misled. Strong's Concordance tells us that the word creature of Genesis 2.19 is Strong's number 5.3.15. The Hebrew word is nepesh. It means a breathing creature, i.e. animal of vitality, used very widely in a literal, accommodated, or figurative sense, bodily or meant. Any appetite, beast, body, breath, creature, dead, deadly, desire, dis or contented, fish, ghost, greedy, pea, heart, half, jeopardy of, life, in jeopardy, lust, man, 
me, mind, mortally, one, own, person, pleasure, her, him, my, thyself, them, yourselves, slay, soul, tablet, they, thing, she, will, would have it. 5314 means nipash, a primitive root, to breathe. Passive, to be breathed upon, i.e. figurative, refreshed, as if by a current of air. B, refreshed selves. The word creature not only means animal, but also means a breathing creature, man and person. Now you tell me, what part of the original Hebrew excludes any of the non-white races from being a part of the living creatures that were brought before Adam? and named. This does not make them animals. The definition specifically lists man and person. So now that you know the true definition of man and Adam, and that the Bible is the book of the generations of Adam, and not the family history of the Chinese or other races, other than preconceived, politically correct, sacred cow theology, what part of the original Hebrew excludes these other races from being part of the living creatures? The answer is nothing. Not one thing. The only exclusion is tradition and misinterpretation of God's word by politically correct, multiculturalist ministers and sacred cow theologians. Unless you want to be like the Pharisees and scribes that Jesus condemned, I throw out your sacred cow tradition and listen to God. Christ said, quote, Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. Will you honor Jesus with your lips so your sacred cow theology can be comfortably kept while your heart is far from him? That's what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus called their worship vain, quote, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men. Christianity is full of tradition, has been for centuries. Will you allow your sacred cow traditions to keep you from God's truth? Millions do. Even after reading truth, they just can't give up tradition. God acknowledged that Adam should not be alone, then made him wait for his mate. Can you imagine how long it must have taken to name all the living creatures? Why not just get it over with and create Eve right away? Why make the other creatures parade before Adam in what must have been an extremely long naming ceremony? I believe it was to imprint into the mind of Adam that kind after kind is God's way. As these living creatures paraded before Adam, kind after kind with their mates, Adam saw them, male and female, together, each with their own species. The endless parade of kind after kind made a lasting impact on Adam to pass on to future generations. God has a set order, and that order is kind after kind. After the naming ceremony, Adam must have thought, where's my mate? Where's my kind after kind? I believe it was to imprint, oh, and among all those living creatures, there was not one that was Adam's kind. And Adam recognized this truth after the endless parade passed before him. Many theories are out there about the origin of the races. Christians have come up with their own ideas on how all the races came about. There are those who believe in evolution. I just can't fathom coming from apes. Some believe that creation occurred over long time periods and that God and science agree in this regard. 
The races were each created separately over vast amounts of time, with the Adamites, white man, being the last to be created. Some believe that creation was six literal days and that God created all the different races on the sixth day, including Adam, the first white man. Some believe that Adam was the first white man and that Cain's, quote, curse was being black. Hogwash. Some believe that Adam was the first white man and that after the flood, Noah's three sons became the, quote, fathers of the white, black, and yellow races. Again, hogwash. That's like believing in evolution. A white man can no sooner turn black any more than a black man can turn white. Still others believe that Noah's three sons were white, but that Canaan's, quote, curse was being black. Again, hogwash. History alone tells us that his descendants were white. Use a little common sense here. Some people believe that when God confounded the languages at the Tower of Babel, he, quote, created the different races at this time. Again, hogwash. Then they must not believe the Bible because it absolutely says that, quote, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them on the sixth day of creation. If God wasn't finished with creation and still needed to make the other races, why would the Bible record in Genesis 2-2, quote, and on the seventh day God ended or finished his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. Either you believe God or not, you can't have it both ways. The Bible chronology is clear, backed up by archaeology, by the way. God created all creatures first, including all non-white races. Then he created Adam, the first white man. What timeline you want to believe, long periods of time, or actual 24-hour days is up to you as long as you get the order of creation correct. The Bible also clearly states that God created everything, including the separate and distinct races after their kind, and that he proclaimed them good. Adam was created last. The Bible then states that God brought his glorious creation before Adam for naming. And because a woman of Adam's kind had not yet been created, quote, for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Until a woman of his own race was created, Adam would have no mate suitable for him. Your sacred cow tradition is arguing with me right now. You're probably a little irked. But like it or not, this is biblical truth. Adam needed a suitable mate. After all, it's not good that man be alone. He gets into all kinds of trouble when he gets bored. God solved the problem, caused Adam to slumber, took one of his ribs, and created woman. Adam recognized immediately that this woman was his kind. He had seen all the others. He knew the difference. When God brings the woman to him, Adam says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. The RSV states that Adam says, quote, at last. Adam's relief is obvious. About time, God, Adam says, that you brought me one of my own. Don't miss the significance of the event. Although he easily could have, God did not create Eve from the same dust of the earth with, with which he created Adam. Instead, God took one of Adam's ribs to create a wife fit for him. Eve was made from the same flesh. They were the same race. Adam recognized her as such when he said that she was 
flesh of my flesh. In other words, they were the same kind. Adam is saying to his creator, at last, you brought me someone fit to be my wife. Only someone who is of Adam's kind, Adam's species, would have been fit to be his wife. God performed the first marriage right there in the Garden of Eden. And he did it between people of the same race that he specifically created to be the perfect fit. It doesn't get any better than that. Guess God was the first racist. Then I guess you'll have to send that sacred cow to a distant pasture when it comes to this piece of biblical truth. Genesis 5.3 tells us that after the tragic murder of Abel and the banishment of Cain, Adam, quote, begat a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Remind you of the words God used when creating Adam? Seth could not look like his father if his mother was black, Asian, or anything else but of the same race as Adam. If you don't like that, talk to God about genetics when you meet him someday. Then Genesis chapter 5-1 tells us that, quote, This is the book of the generations of Adam, and lists the descendants of Adam and Eve through Seth down to Noah. Is this a book about the generations of the Japanese? Nope. Chinese? Not at all. Do you think they're mad about not being included in the history of the generations of Adam? Uh, they shouldn't be. If I wrote a book about the history of my family, would yours be in it? Of course not. Would you be upset with me if I didn't list you in my own history book? Don't know why you would. Ten generations are listed in Genesis chapter 5. Yonfest, boring for some to read, but critical to God when he inspired the biblical writer. Why? Because each one of these generations had sons and daughters in their own likeness and after their own image. How do we know? First, because we just learned that Adam knew better. Don't you think he taught Seth and his grandchildren God's kind after kind? Next, Enoch, the seventh generation, walked with God. You can't walk with God if you aren't following his commandments, statutes, and laws, which included kind after kind. And finally, we know that ten generations after Adam were pure racially because Noah, the tenth generation from Adam, was still in the image of Adam, still pure racially. Bet your pastor never taught you that little fact about Noah. When I get sacred cows bellowing, it makes me want to educate people about God's truth even more because I get so irritated with pastors and their sacred cow theology. The Bible says that, quote, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. The King James puts it this way, quote, Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. The worldview of the biblical translators didn't like the word generations, so they dropped the S and changed the meaning of the phrase in most modern versions of the Bible. It's only a little change, quite subtle, but without the plural, the meaning of the phrase appears to be that Noah was a good man in his own lifetime and during his day. When instead, the phrase actually means that Noah was perfect in his descent, heritage, lineage, and family history. Let's go to our concordance and see what the original Hebrew means. The word, quote, perfect is Strong's number 8549. The Hebrew word tamim and means, quote, integrity, truth, without blemish, complete, full, perfect, sincerely, sound, without spot, undefiled, upright, whole. Obviously, Noah being, quote, perfect means much more than what you have been taught in Sunday school. Sure, Noah was a good man, godly even, 
but Noah was also without blemish, without spot, undefiled in his racial purity and heritage. I know this because the word generations is Strong's number 8435 and means, quote, descent, i.e. family, history, birth, generations. The meaning is perfectly clear once you get beyond the politically correct modern translations. Noah's ancestors had done the right thing and married only other Adamites. Noah's genes were pure and undefiled without spot. Racially, Noah's lineage went straight back to Adam without blemish. Noah was perfect in his generations. Think about this. Noah was around 14 when Seth died. Enoch, who, quote, walked with God, was his great-grandfather and was around about 70 years old before being no more. After the flood, Shem and Abraham overlapped for 150 years, Isaac and Shem for 50. Don't tell me these men didn't pass on their knowledge of God's commandments, statutes, and laws to the next generation. After all, we're told that both Abraham and Isaac followed them. Now you know why the, quote, modern translations put their own spin on Genesis 6-9. The NIV, today's most popular translation, says that, quote, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. How's that for twisting the original meaning of Scripture? What a sacred cow theology. So now I can hear you asking, what's the big deal? A lot, for two reasons. First, if it mattered enough to God to write this in his book and pass it down to us thousands of years later, it should matter to you. The second is that Christ was to come from the line of David, who came from the line of Judah, who came from the line of Abraham, who came from the line of Noah, who came from the line of Adam. And Christ could only come from the purer line of Adam, period. Have a difficult time with that? Talk to God. He's the one who said so, not me. Ten generations after Noah, we come to Abraham, who, by the way, married his relative, not a heathen. Genesis 26.5 tells us that Abraham obeyed the voice of God and kept his charge, commandments, statutes, and laws. Obviously, unlike later Israelites, the descendants of Adam, Seth, and Noah did their job and taught their children well. Abraham learned well because the Bible says he obeyed the voice of God and kept God's commandments, statutes, and laws. And when it's time for Isaac, the son of promise, to get married, who did Abraham choose for a wife for him? Did Abraham get Isaac a wife from among the people where they were living? Absolutely not. No daughter of the Canaanites would pollute the bloodline that would eventually bring forth our Savior. Abraham sent his most trusted servant unto my country and to my kindred, and take a wife unto my son Isaac. The servant was to go back home, back to where Abraham's family was living back to his own kind. Only one of his kindred would be a suitable bride for Isaac, the son of promise. And that's exactly what the servant did. He went back and found Rebekah, brought her home, and she became Isaac's wife. Read about it in Genesis 20, chapter 24. It's a wonderful story. From the union of Isaac and Rebekah, we have Jacob and Esau. When Rebekah is pregnant, she was told by God that two nations were in her womb and that the firstborn would serve the younger. Most students of the Bible know the story of Jacob and Esau and how Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of lentils. Jacob was destined to be the son of promise, the father of many nations. But do you know the story of Esau's wives? Quote, And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, 
which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. The RSV says that the wives made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. You don't know that story? Not surprising, wrong worldview. According to sacred cow thinking, mixed marriages don't make life bitter. Yet the Bible clearly states that the foreign wives of Esau were a pain and heartbreak for his parents. They made life bitter, full of grief. I can only imagine the problems that Isaac and Rebekah faced. In Hebrews 12:16, God calls Esau a fornicator. Was Esau guilty of sex outside of marriage? Not that I know of. The Bible doesn't say he was, so what did Esau do? He married wives that were not of his race and violated the law of kind after kind. The Greek word used in Hebrews is Strong's number 4205, quote, pornos. It means a male prostitute or a whoremonger. Yikes, strong language. God doesn't mince words. Esau was a fornicator because his wives were legal in the eyes of man, but not to the eyes of God. When it was Jacob's time to get married, Rebekah said to Isaac, quote, I got enough of these foreign wives of Esau, she added. They're wearing me out. What good will my life be if Jacob makes the same mistake? So Isaac called Jacob to him and said, quote, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. And just like Isaac before him, Jacob was sent to his kindred to take a wife from his own kind. Esau would later take a third wife who was his racial cousin in order to please his father. We all know the story of how Jacob ended up with the sisters, Rachel and Leah. Leah. It is from Jacob, renamed Israel, and his twelve sons that we get the children of Israel. These Israelites were told that they were special people to God and to stay separate from all the others around them. Quote, Ye shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have severed or separated you from other people, that ye should be mine. Quote, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Israelite tribes were expressly told not to marry outside of their tribes and race. They were to mar- only marry other Israelites, quote, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. Even within their own tribes, when inheritance was at stake, they had to marry a fellow tribe member. To ensure this racial separation and uniqueness, the Israelites were told to utterly destroy the nations that inhabited Canaan before they took possession. God said that he would, quote, blot out these heathen nations. The word extermination comes to mind. At least seven nations were to be completely annihilated by the Israelites to ensure their separation from the heathens. They were the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Six of the seven races were a direct result of incest, more in a later chapter. Nothing is known about the Perizzites. Even though Israel had about 2 million people with 600,000 fighting men, God says that these nations are greater and mightier than the Israelites. That means there were a lot of heathen for the Israelites to destroy. On the other hand, there were a lot of heathen to not only tempt the Israelites, but defile them with their tainted blood if they didn't obey the command of God and utterly destroy these nations. 
This geographical separation from all other people would ha- would have naturally meant racial separation as well. If there had been Chinese living in the land of Canaan at that time, they would have been added to the list of nations God wanted destroyed. If there had been the Negro Nubians, you would see them on the list. The names of the nations don't matter. It's the separation that God wanted. The fact that the Israelites did not obey the command of God and utterly destroy the people of Canaan was to become their downfall. Deuteronomy 23.3 adds the, quote, Ammonites and Moabites to the list of prohibited races, quote, An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to the tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. God says ten generations and then adds forever. That means never, ever can an Ammonite or a Moabite be included in God's people. These two races were also a direct result of incest through Lot and his two daughters. God has reasons beyond race for prohibiting mixing. Can you count back to your 10th generation? Over the last few years, I've been doing my family history and genealogy. Thank goodness for modern computers. It's a lot of fun, extremely difficult, hard work, and very challenging. My 10th great-grandparents were born around 1580. Over 400 years ago, bet you didn't know who your 10th generation is unless you're into genealogy and have a computer to keep track of it all. Most people don't even know who their third or fourth great-grandparents are. It's almost impossible to keep track of 10 generations without the help of modern computers and genealogists. That's why God set his command this way. The command wasn't, quote, when you convert these heathen, then you can marry them and bring them into your midst. No! The command was never, not ever, can these foreigners be brought into your midst. God said, no. Deuteronomy 7.4 gives the reason why the Israelites were also told to follow kind after kind when they married. Quote, For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. Now, there are those people whose worldview is not God's worldview. These people will tell you that the only reason why God told the Israelites not to marry the heathens is because they, quote, would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. After all, that's what the text says, isn't it? And it's certainly a valid valid concern. These same people with their own sacred cow theological worldview will tell you that as long as the Israelites converted these heathens, then it was okay to marry them. Stay true to your faith and marry anyone you want. Tradition, isn't it grand? Might not be accurate, but gives you such a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. Show me that in the Word of God. Go ahead. Show me where it says you can convert someone not of your kind and then marry them. I'll feed your cow while I wait. Find the text where God willfully abrogates his own law. I'm waiting. Because if that's the case, then you'll have to explain why it was sin in the book of Nehemiah to have married these very same people. Come on. Don't tell me your pastor never told you about Nehemiah. How about the book of Ezra? Certainly you've been taught about the racial reforms in the book of Ezra. No. Hosea? Do you know what Hosea said about having racially mixed children? No. You've got to be kidding. What's wrong with the preachers and Bible teachers of today? I'm bold enough to tell you. Money and sacred cow theological tradition. 
that one, that one of the many problems afflicting the churches of today. <clears throat> they want to keep the numbers of, quote, saints in the pews so that the dollars keep pouring into the collection plates. Tradition is more important than biblical truth. I don't have that problem. The prophet Hosea rebuked the house of Israel for going against the command of God and bearing strange children, quote, They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have begotten strange children. The word, quote, strange is from the Hebrew word, quote, zur, and means a primitive root, to turn aside, especially for lodging, hence to be a foreign, strange, profane, to commit adultery, come from another man or place, fanner, go away, strange. Can God be any clearer? He never intended his people created in his image to mix with strangers or foreigners. God calls this mixing treachery against him. Treachery means disloyalty. You can choose to be loyal to the commands of God, or you can choose to be treacherous. Personally, I'm opting for loyalty. You and your sacred cow are certainly welcome to join me on God's side. The injunction on Rachel mixing is so clear and forceful in Ezra and Nehemiah that today's religious leaders deliberately choose to ignore both books to keep their sacred cows from having upset stomachs. It's pitiful, actually. When Israel returned from the 70-year Babylonian captivity, the officials discovered that the people had been interracially mixing and the priests and Levites were leading the apostasy. Nehemiah calls this mixing sin and says that the holy race has been mixed with foreigners. Nehemiah also acknowledges that it was the sin of their fathers that caused this unholy race mixing. Quote, And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. This is amazing. Such good stuff in God's word when you set aside your sacred cow traditions and open his book and your heart to his truths. Isn't God wonderful? Ezra calls God's people the holy race or seed. He says that the officials and chief men are the biggest problem in the mixing of this holy seed with the people of the land. Oh yes, I quoted that correctly. Read it for yourself if you don't believe me. Who was the biggest problem in Ezra's day but their religious leaders? The priests and the Levites who should have known better and been an example of righteousness for the Israelites on how to obey the law of God were leading the way to apostasy. There were no Bibles in every home back then. Scrolls had to be laboriously copied by hand. The people depended on their leaders to know truth and teach it to them. Today, everyone has a Bible in their homes, yet Christians still depend on their religious leaders to teach them, guide them, and show them the way. Hundreds of books are on store shelves, quote, educating Christians on how to live a Christ-like life. Quote, great theologians become a popular and become popular, and hundreds of thousands of Christians flock to their seminars, Bible studies, and read their books in order to, quote, learn the Word of God. Billy Graham has preached before millions of people. Beth Moore has reached tens of thousands of women with her message. Hundreds of other religious leaders, most not nearly as popular, have become the surrogate spiritual guides for millions. Christians happily and ignorantly get their, quote, truth through the filter of someone else's sacred cow theology. Yet these leaders are not teaching honesty and spiritual truth. Unfortunately, their, quote, way is just as full of apostasy today as it was thousands of years ago. 
when Ezra and Nehemiah made their reforms. The Bible warned us about this type of sacred cow theology. Quote, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they help to keep to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Oh yes, Christians have, quote, itching ears, preferring, quote, fables to sound doctrine. And their religious leaders are giving them just what they want. But in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people knew they had broke faith with God by marrying outside their race. The only hope for Israel was to send the polluting foreigners away. Do you think they had the courage to make such a difficult choice? Absolutely. The foreign women and mixed children were sent away. The offending husbands, for the most part, went with them. Harsh? From today's all-inclusive, multicultural perspective, absolutely. From God's perspective, absolutely not. These mixed-race people had become a part of Israel. They were aunts, cousins, beloved family members, but they were sent away in order to be obedient to the command of God and to purify the holy seed. Not only for that time, but for future generations. Christ had to come from the pure line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Plus, God's laws do not change. Not then, not now. No exceptions. Powerful stuff. What's more, when the genealogies were read, the priests who couldn't prove their pure Israelite lineage were considered, quote, unclean. Makes people uncomfortable today. What's the big deal? They're obviously fitting in. Just let them be part of Israel if they want. After all, they're they're with the returning exiles. They've obviously assimilated. They want to help rebuild the temple. But man's ways are not God's ways. Race is important to God, and it should be to us as well. Polluted, unclean, the priests were considered non-Israelite. <clears throat> were these priests excluded because they didn't believe in God or the faith of the Israelites? Absolutely not. They were excluded because they could not prove their racial pedigree. Their heritage was not pure. Obviously, the priests were fully assimilated into the faith of the returning captives. This just proves that the theologians of today are wrong. Race trumps faith in the Bible. God really is the first racialist. The Bible doesn't tell us if these priests eventually were able to come up with the right paperwork. But in the meantime, they were excluded from the priesthood because they were unclean in the eyes of God and not part of Israel. Read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. You'll get a new understanding of their returning exiles and the struggles they went through. You'll also get a new understanding of God's will on his chosen people being kept separate from the polluting nations around them. The Israelites face difficult choices, the same choice we now face. Do we have the same courage they had? It's time to purify the holy seed again. Nehemiah discovered that the Israelites had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, Ammon, and Moab, and quote, and their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews or Israelite language, but according to the language of each people. <clears throat> this is more than just interracial marriage. This is a loss of heritage. What did Nehemiah do? He cursed them and beat them and pulled out their hair. He reminded them that foreign women made Solomon sin. Nehemiah actually chased from his presence one of the men who had interracially married. When he was finished, Nehemiah ends his book by saying, quote, Thus cleansed I them from all strangers. 
The RSV states it this way, quote, Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. His final plea is, Remember me, O my God, for good. Seed is now pure. Please remember the good that I've done. Can you imagine how heartbreaking this must have been for the rest of the people? But God is very clear in his word. Kind after kind must be followed. Ezra and Nehemiah, God's Israel, needs you today. We need courageous leaders like this in every pulpit of America today, bold in the truth, powerful in the faith. We need men who will slaughter sacred cows. Ezra was so appalled when he learned about the racial mixing that he rent his garments and refused to eat. He was so ashamed that he begged God to take the guilt away from the people who practiced the abomination. Yes, Israel called race mixing an abomination. He also said that in doing so, the people had forsaken God's commandments. Ezra wept and cried and cast himself before the house of God. Nehemiah pulled out his hair and beard, pulled out the hair and beard of the offenders, cursed them, beat some of them, and chased them from his sight. He then cleansed the foreigners from the midst of Israel. Oh yes, we need courageous theologians and politicians like Ezra and Nehemiah. We need men and women who will fight for their heritage and not back down. Godly men willing to put the word of God ahead of sacred cow tradition. We need women who are not afraid of truth and will fight for their heritage. Ezra and Nehemiah, where are you when Israel needs you? The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are not an accident. Their inspiration and inclusion in the Holy Scriptures are powerful proof that God will not be mocked. You either follow his law of kind after kind or you're excluded. There is no middle ground with God. For I, the Lord, do not change. If it was a sin for Israel to marry foreign wives in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, then it's a sin to marry outside of our race today. Now you will find lots of, quote, theologians who will disagree. They will artfully twist scripture to, quote, prove that I'm wrong. Don't be fooled by their fancy words and high and mighty titles. I may write simply, but you don't need a doctrine in theology to understand the Bible. As a matter of fact, maybe you need one to twist God's word into confusion. Remember, God says no. The following chapters will only help solidify that point with you and your sacred cow. Alright, so that was uh, chapter 13 from the book, Our Sacred Cow History. And uh, I might read more out of this book sometime in the future. Anyway, uh, see you guys later. Bye.